Thanks, Andy. Morning, everybody. If you have um, a Bible or you have the Bible on your phone, I would love you to find 2 Corinthians and chapter 5. Um, it's great to see you today. I'm just going to find my notes. We have been uh, working our way through 2 Corinthians, apart from last week when we uh, paused to celebrate what God was doing at our conference and Mark was sharing some things. But before that, we were looking at a series that today we're starting a new bit. We're still in 2 Corinthians. It's called Generosity. Okay. Up until now, we've been looking at resilience, building resilience. Um, you might ask me, um, what does this have to do with multiply? I told you a few weeks ago that multiply was our word of the year. It feels like it's the, the vision that God has given us, um, something to pray into and to preach into and to explore for the rest of the year. And the first multiply series we wanted to do was um, building resilience. And um, the reason for that is it's quite important if God is going to multiply things that we understand what it is that we're multiplying. You know, if we multiply something that's weak, then that's not going to get there. And so we very, very much wanted to sort of kick the year off looking at what kind of shape our faith is in and um, wanting to start off as people who have a strong faith. Now, I'm aware that the pandemic particularly impacted many people, many people's faith. Those, I was hearing some research the other day, those who had cultivated practices that helped them stay close to Jesus despite their circumstances, came through the pandemic much stronger than those who didn't in terms of faith. If most of our faith is about coming to church and being with the crowd, this is wonderful, but there's more to it than that. And how do we continue to be the kind of disciples that can withstand difficult times, that can deal with suffering? How do we grow in our faith when things are really difficult? That's what we've been doing, talking about so far in 2 Corinthians. And we did um, three weeks on this. I spoke and Paul spoke and Claire spoke. And here are the sort of, here's the, the, here's the greatest hits so far. Um, these are the things we've already looked at as we worked our way through the first four chapters of 2 Corinthians, that God comforts us in all of our troubles. I should remind you, by the way, that 2 Corinthians is the most personal of all Paul's letters in the New Testament. It's filled with deep emotion. It's written in response to a complicated history between Paul and the church that he had planted some years before. There was division between them, which stemmed from other people coming into the church after Paul had left and teaching some stuff that was counter to what Paul was sort of writing and teaching. There was criticism there. Now, many of the church, by the time we get to this letter, had repented, but not all of them. And so Paul is writing this letter to assure the Corinthian church of his love, of his forgiveness, of his commitment to them, to encourage them in their faith, to encourage them to fully repent. And as part of that, and we'll get onto this next week and the week after, to fully see through the financial commitments that they had come to. And he also writes to argue his case, and he also writes to challenge the rebellious minority. And so as we've looked at the first few chapters, this is what we've come up with, that God comforts us in our troubles, so we get to comfort others, that the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. I love that verse. We even sing that sometimes, don't we? There's another one in, uh, that Paul talks about how we all with unveiled faces as we behold the glory of God are being transformed into the same image, one degree of glory to another. And then when Claire spoke, she spoke about this famous verse, we have this treasure in jars of clay. In other words, God's amazing treasure in jars of kind of very down-to-earth clay, which is the, the metaphor is that's us, to show the surpassing power 
to show that the surpassing power belongs to God. It's not about what we've got, it's about him in us. And then for, therefore we don't lose heart. And even though it feels like our outer self is wasting away, perhaps some of us feel more than that than others, um, our inner self continues to be renewed day by day. And this, that how God is with us through adversity and through trouble, how his power is made perfect in weakness, this was a key theme of last month. This was a key theme of last weekend's Equip and Ignite conference, how God's presence and his power and the freedom that he brings is available to all of us for ourselves and for others. For ourselves and for others. Let me just read you this, um, this testimony. I found it, but I put it in the wrong place. Forgive me. Somebody wrote this, and I just wanted to encourage you. Somebody uh, wrote this to us this week after the conference. Um, not that one. This one. I, ha- I experienced a very encouraging prophetic ministry followed by a continuation of his powerful presence through passionate worship. I experienced God more closely than ever before. He wasn't just in the room. He was sat with me. Such love, peace, calm and happiness. A powerful contentment in his presence. Nothing else mattered. A place I did not want to leave. Isn't that beautiful? I'm so delighted. We're so de- we've received a number of sort of testimonies and stories about what God has been doing and what God was doing at the conference last week. And that was just one of them. I'm so delighted that so many people got to meet with God in that way. And so that's all the backdrop. And now we're going to move on to the next section, which is called, under the, still under the multiply banner, multiply generosity. Now, generosity means uh, something which is larger or more plentiful than is usual or necessary. And we're going to look at chapter 5. And chapter 5 is kind of like a bridge between these two themes, between the inner theme, the inner work of building resilience in our relationship with God and learning to withstand the tough times and recover from difficulty quickly, and a bridge between that and the outer work of generosity. Generosity meaning meaning living a life that is larger and more plentiful than is usual or necessary. You see, we follow a God who is generous, generous to a fault, a God who has resources and provision for us, who always gives us what we need and often gives us more than we need and calls us to be a generous people. Because when we invest in spending time with God, we cultivate practices that enable us not just to experience his life for ourselves. When that happens, there's also always got to be an outflow. So a resilient faith leads to a generous faith. And I'm not just talking financial generosity, that's part of it. I'm talking generosity in our words and our actions, in our relationships and our activities, in our choices, in our values, what we think is important, how we choose to use the resources that we've got, our time and our energy and, yes, our money. And in case you think I'm jumping straight into money, I'm not talking really about money today. Much of that's coming next week and the week after. Today is about setting that up and giving context for that. And we're going to jump in by reading the whole of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I don't have the words up there, so I'd love you to follow um, on your own Bible or on your phone if you've got it. And we're just going to go through to um, verse 2 of chapter 6. Okay. Um, I'm not going to necessarily cover all of this in the talk, but I just think it's really good to read these things out. Um, And these are the three headings I'm going to come to in a few minutes. This is called Our Heavenly Dwelling. Now we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. 
Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, because when we're clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we, were in, we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened, because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now it is God who has made us for this very purpose and has given us the Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. We live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord, so we make it our goal to please him whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade men. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it's also plain to your conscience. We're not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us. Remember, when Paul says we, mostly he's talking about himself. He's like the royal we sort of thing. So that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, it is for the sake of God. If we are in our, t- in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though once we regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of the reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. As God's fellow workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain, for he says, in the time of my favor I heard you, and in the day of salvation I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. It's a... I read it intentionally, even though some of the language is pretty dense in that chapter. Um, You might recognize some of those verses. Certainly I do. As I said, there's more of Paul's greatest hits in there in terms of verses that stand out that make you think, oh, I know a song about that. You know, mainly I know a kid's song about that. I know a brilliant kid's song called I'm Going to Walk by Faith and Not by Sight. It involves involves sort of cowboy moves and all sorts of stuff. Um, I won't go there now. But... um, but it's important to get the whole context. Um, we don't have time to dig into everything. That is, it's so rich and so deep, what he's writing there. We don't have time to dig into all of it, but we will pick out some verses. And I think there are three things that I think he's talking about here. And it's living by faith, and living transformed, and living for others. And so the first verse is uh, verse 1. We know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, then we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. This passage sort of sums up everything we've talked about in 2 Corinthians so far, about how it's, how it's possible to stay resilient 
in the face of suffering, to look to God despite our circumstances, because ultimately we don't live in this world. Where we are now, this body that we're in, this place we're in, ultimately it's temporary. We have a heavenly home, a building, a house from God. I don't know if you heard about this guy. He was in the news recently. Max Woozy is called, lives down in um, Devon, the boy in the tent. He started sleeping in his back garden, I think when lockdown started, in March 2020. And uh, he's been sleeping in his garden ever since. He's about to stop after three years. Um, He was 10 at the time, and an elderly neighbor gave him a tent and said, here you are, go and have fun. And then the elderly neighbor sadly um, died of cancer not very long afterwards. So Max here started raising money for his local hospice and has slept outside every night for a 1,000 days and raised something like 700,000 pounds. And they're finishing. He's finishing soon with a big final sort of festival and fireworks and a celebration and media and all sorts of stuff. Now, I enjoyed camping as a child. I enjoyed camping as a younger adult. I'm not bothered about camping now, if I'm honest. Um, But I used to love the sound of rain on the tent when I was inside, wrapped up warm and dry. One of my favorite things. Nowadays, I'll even go onto YouTube and try and get a video of that sound just, and then just sort of wrap up in a bit of a blanket and, and, and you know, I'm probably telling you too much information, aren't I? Um, I remember one particular family holiday though in Cornwall when we, the kids were very young and we were pitching a tent in the rain in what happened to what turned out to be the bottom end of the field, you know, where all the water sort of flowed. And um, I remember the, uh, one of the kids, the youngest one, was in a cot, uh, a travel cot, which is off the floor. And so the, the, the cot was off the floor, with the, but the rain was, the water was underneath. You know, I remember that. That wasn't so much fun. Um, I was very happy to go camping for a bit, but always very happy to have a solid home to come back to. And that's the analogy Paul is using here. Remember, Paul's day job while he was living in Corinth, where the church was planted, was he was a tent maker. He would t- make tents that were sold to sailors or used for housing visitors to the the sort of big festival, the, what's called the Isthmian Games, which is an ancient sort of sports and music festival, something like the Olympics, but back in the day. And so Paul's whole analogy here is what we have now is temporary. It's like living in a tent. We have a permanent building, a permanent home prepared for us. And he's talking about our earthly bodies and our heavenly bodies. He's saying this, what we have now is for now, but there is something much more complete, much more solid, much more strong. And so when the storms come and we look around us and wonder if our tent is going to hold up, that's the groaning he talks about. And it's very real, actually. And Paul is saying there is more. There's more to life than a temporary shelter which might or might not survive the storms. There's more than an earthly body that experiences pain and suffering and wasting away. There is a better reality coming. And the Holy Spirit is the down payment That's what we get now. That's what guarantees it when Jesus returns. And therefore, you know, halfway down the first section, verse 6, therefore. You know that thing about when you read a therefore in the Bible? You always have to look and say, what's it therefore? Okay? Okay? He's saying, because of this, therefore that. Because of this, therefore that. It's a connecting word. And so because of that reality, that reality that where we're at now is only only temporary, because of that, therefore, we don't act according to what we see in front of us. We act according to God's bigger picture, God's bigger kingdom, heavenly 
story, we live by faith and not by sight. And it can be so easy, can't it, to respond to the situations we see in front of us with emotions based on just what we can see right now. Fear, anxiety, loneliness, despair. We might look at what we are experiencing and wonder if we are ever going to make it through this season in one piece. Paul is reminding us that God sees things very differently to us, that we can always be confident in him. And he's inviting us to live according to God's vision of life and not our own. That might mean when our kids are making decisions that we would rather they didn't make, we still continue to love them and pray for them and trust that God is holding them because we know he is. That's the truth of it. We just don't always live as if we feel like that or believe it. Maybe, that's, maybe it means like when, when it looks like our money this month is going to be really tight, we continue to try and be generous and open-handed with our resources because we're trusting that God will provide everything we need, like we know he will. It means when relationships are strained or tense and it's just kind of easier to avoid people, it means actually choosing to do the mature thing, going and dealing with our own stuff choosing to release forgiveness, to go humbly in the opposite spirit, to trust that God will help us get the right balance of grace and truth. That's what it looks like on the ground to live by faith and not by sight. It means living with a heavenly mindset. And Paul also reminds us it might even mean making choices about what we do that go beyond ourselves. In verse 9, he says, we make it our goal to please him. In verse 10, Paul reminds us that we will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ one day and will receive what we are due. It's not a very popular message in the church or everywhere else, is it? We're going to get judged one day. Now, I'm not getting into the whole judgment and death thing and how that all works, but I simply want to say this. God, Paul is reminding us that our actions today have consequences eternally what we do now has eternal consequences and so as followers of Jesus we are all always called to live with a bigger picture in mind it's like choosing to wear a particular pair of glasses called kingdom glasses that allow us to see more than just what's physically in front of us they allow us to see what God is doing in his kingdom When something difficult happens, it's like asking the question. My daughter's church, they have this saying. Whenever something difficult happens, the phrase is, the question is, what does this now make available to us? Which is a question of faith and a kingdom mindset. It's an opportunity to grow in resilience and faith. You know, we told you the story before about this carpet before Christmas and how Pretty miraculously, and after quite a lot of praying um, and asking, God was able to provide for us to get a new carpet in the church. I know it doesn't feel like much, and we've probably all taken it for granted now. Lovely, isn't it? But believe me, back in 2019, we had a, a bigger problem with a roof, a hole in the roof. And God, again, had a strategy to fix the holes and to provide the money when we just didn't have it. We just didn't have it. We didn't know where it was going to come from. A friend of mine once prayed, Lord, stamp my eyes with eternity. Please allow me to see life, not through just the things that are in front of me, but through the bigger picture. Living in this world, but with reference to God's purposes and values. That's what we mean when we say we're kingdom people. 
people who live with the kingdom of God in mind and see beyond ourselves with the eyes of faith. That's, that's kind of number one. That's uh, living by faith. I want to talk about living transformed and move on to the next verse, verse 11. It says, since then, there's another, there's another connecting word, by the way. In other translations, it says there, therefore, okay? Since then, means the same thing. Since then, because of all that, because we live by faith, because we know there's a different reality, because we know there's a bigger picture, since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord, therefore, we try to persuade others. And this is, the kind of, this is the kind of verse on which this whole passage, and in fact that series from, Mar- from February and this series from March turns, we do not keep this truth to ourselves. This is incredible news. We have a transformational message to share and everybody needs to hear it. Everybody needs the opportunity to experience this freedom and we all have a part to play. Not because some pastor on the stage is cracking the whip and telling us to go share it or not because we have to tick a box, because we have the radical life-changing love of Jesus inside us and it has so changed us that we are compelled to do something about that, compelled to share it. If, you haven't, if we haven't grasped hold of what Jesus has actually done for us, then that is worth reflecting on. I was listening to a podcast this week. A guy called Matt Ford hosts a podcast called The Political Party, interviews politicians, also does very funny um, impressions of them. He's a very funny guy. Anyway, he was interviewing this lady. Um, I'm, not getting, I'm not getting into the politics of this. I just thought this was a, a fascinating, um, fascinating question. This is a lady of faith who is, um, I think her name is Kate Forbes. She's, been stat- she's one of the candidates for the Scottish National Party. And Matt was interviewing her about her faith. And he said this, I wrote it down word for word, his question. And this guy who was asking the question, he said he had a, he'd had a background of growing up in church, but would say he was an atheist now. He said this, faith gives you resilience, hope on a daily basis, it energizes and motivates people in a way which nothing else really does. It has kept my family members and friends going through the most difficult times. How do people who don't have faith get that without having to have faith? Is there a way to distill what Christianity gives you for people like me who are atheists? In other words, can I get that without having to believe in a higher power? And I thought that was just a fascinating question. A fascinating question. Because here is somebody who is saying, how do I get what you've got? The radical life, you know, somewhere for him, the radical life-changing message of Jesus, transforming power, has got lost amidst all the stuff from religion. Somewhere for him it's got lost. Because if you cut through all of that stuff, what you've got, what Paul's describing here, is is a fantastic central truth. And this is in verse 14 and 15. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that no one... Sorry, let's start that again. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. What Paul is saying here is that Jesus' death changes everything. Now we know this, this is the gospel, this is the story of our faith. This is the truth that's central to everything we believe. When we come to Jesus, we are changed. Without Jesus, we're going nowhere. There's no point, there's nothing to live for. We can try and live for politics, if you like, which is what that guy was asking. 
Where do I get that kind of certainty from without believing in Jesus? My answer is I'm not sure that you can. You can try. We can't relate to God because he's too perfect. And we just mess it up every time. And that's the story of the whole of the Old Testament. It's a story of my life when I try and do stuff in my own strength, when I try and go my own way. The story of a whole world of people who are trying to hold it together. We just can't hold it together in our own strength. We're looking for meaning. We're looking for purpose in our lives. We're looking for experiences that will fulfill us, that will take us away from our everyday situation, experiences that will dull the pain, escape from the grudge and the drudge. We're looking for relationships that will give us meaning. We're looking for lifestyle choices that will bring us joy. We can try and escape into this fantasy world of Netflix or social media or follow other people's beautifully curated and well-filtered lives. Anything to divert us from the present-day problems that we feel. That's where I think a lot of people in this world live. And none of these things are bad in themselves, but none of them will ultimately fulfill us because none of them will help us reconnect with our Father and our Creator. Only Jesus can do that. Only Jesus. The Bible talks about how before we come to Jesus, we're dead in our sin. We just can't relate to God on our own. We can't make it happen. Think about the story of the prodigal son. The boy takes his father's stuff and basically disrespects him, goes away and lives the life and wastes and squanders all the money with not a thought about his father or family or anything. And then when he tries to come back, he can't get back on his own. I mean, he can walk back. He's not going to walk back into the family as a son. He doesn't feel he can do that. He's going to come back and offer to be a slave or a servant. He needs the father to come to him and say, yes, you're welcome back. We, and it's like that with us and God. We can't get back to God on our own. We can only do it with Jesus because Jesus is the one who died, who because he died, we all died. He paid the penalty for sin. When we accept God's gift of salvation and choose to follow Jesus, we're making a huge choice. We're basically saying, I no longer live for myself today. I live for you. I wonder if some of us are looking for purpose or looking for meaning or looking for something to live for or looking for someone to take away the guilt or the shame or the stress that Andy was talking about earlier or the despair or the anxiety. See, Jesus does that because, and here's another of Paul's greatest hits. I bet you know a song about this if you've been around the church for a few years. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old, excuse me, the old is gone. The new is near, is here. This verse encapsulates for me the whole of Christian faith. You choose to follow Jesus and everything changes. The most significant decision you will ever make. A new language, new values, new purpose, new family, new beliefs, new relationships, a new identity. That's transformation. That's transformation. And the very last verse I read this morning says, now is the day of salvation. And if you're here today and you haven't decided or chosen to follow Jesus, if you haven't made a, a sort of a, a deliberate step of faith or a deliberate, deliberate choice to follow Jesus, we, there's an opportunity, an invitation to do that today. And we'd love to I'll come back to that at the end. So we've talked about living by faith. We've talked about living transformed And the third part of this talk is living for others. As I said, Paul's very clear on this. We don't just get to keep this to ourselves. This truth that we share and celebrate, this is 
too important, too radical. We are expected to share it. Paul is so clear about this that he says it twice. He says it and then he repeats it. All of this is from God, he says, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. And then he says it again, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, just in case we didn't get this the first time, not counting people's sins against them, and he's committed us to the message of reconciliation. Turn to the person next to you, and in 20 seconds, just tell them what your definition of reconciliation is. What does that mean to you? Reconciliation, what does that mean to you? Just turn to the person next to you and share a thought with them. Okay, anybody, anybody, uh, anybody brave enough to share a thought with me? Shout it out for us. What is it? Putting things right. Thank you, David. Anybody else? That's good. Thank you. Good. That's what I put. I, I, I wrote here, in fact, I looked it up. I cheated. I looked it up in the dictionary. Reconciliation means restoring broken relationships, putting things right. And God has, this is what Paul's saying, God has restored our relationship with himself through Jesus, and he's given us the ministry of reconciliation. This is our family business. Anybody who chooses to follow Jesus who's in the family, this is our business, and we are all involved. Sorry if you thought you could escape it. We are all involved in the ministry of reconciliation, meaning helping people restore broken relationships. The broken relationship with God fundamentally and maybe broken relationships with each other. This is the life-transforming power. This is the forgiveness and the freedom and the truth that God gives us. And then lastly, therefore, we're Christ's ambassadors. As though, we were making, as though God were making his appeal through us. And Paul is saying to the church in Corinth, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. And again, I looked up that word ambassador and it means a representative. An ambassador is someone who represents Another country, another nation, another person. And we are God's representatives in this world with a job to do. To present, to represent God's love and power in a way, such a way that people who haven't experienced it can experience it for themselves. And my question is, what would it take for each of us, for you and me, to be involved in helping people restore their broken relationships with God? What would it take for each of us in some way within our context to be involved in the ministry of reconciliation? In other words, helping people restore the broken relationships that they have with God and with each other. That's everything about why we exist as a church. Our purpose here is to reconcile people to God. That might look like all kinds of different practical activities, both here in the church, in, on a Sunday, during the week, out there wherever we are. But ultimately, there's one purpose, there's one reason that we as a church exist, and it's to celebrate the fact that God is reconciled with us, that he's fixed a broken relationship with us, and to help other people connect with him and restore broken relationships.
A man called Bill Hybels once said this, the local church is the hope of the world. It's the God-ordained redemptive agency upon which the destiny of the entire world hangs. I really like that. Actually, theologically, Jesus is the hope of the world. We've established that. But I think Hybels was onto something. The local church, the body of Christ, the hands and feet of Jesus in our part of the world, in our context, is in our street, in our community, in our home, in our workplace. We are the church. You are the church. This church doesn't exist just here on a Sunday morning when we gather for worship, fun as it is. And it is great fun, isn't it? To meet together and to come into God's presence and to experience God's power and to help others make that step. All of that's wonderful. But actually, where this really counts is out there. So what does that look like practically? I'm almost done. I want to talk about three just things very briefly and practically. That's not moving. Can you move that along for me? Thank you. Um, Three things. Actually, you don't have to look much further than a service here on a Sunday morning to get involved in helping people connect with God. Many of us are involved in the Ministry of Reconciliation just by helping helping to make church happen here. Every Sunday morning, there are guests in here who don't know Jesus yet or who are, really, who are just really in a place where they need to connect with him. Every Sunday, there are people here who come because they want to connect with God. Our aim is to create the most welcoming and the safest space possible for people to come and encounter God's presence, particularly people who don't usually go to church, particularly people who haven't been to church for a long time, particularly those who are looking um, to take steps of faith, particularly those who don't feel that they have a place where they belong. But, but this place is open to everyone, and everything we do is geared towards making people feel welcome here, helping them find a parking space, saying hi as they come through the door, giving them a decent cup of coffee, creating a place where the children will have fun and connect with God and make friends. You know, it takes at least 30 people on a Sunday, each Sunday, to make what we do here happen. At least 30 to open the doors, turn up the radiators, park the cars, set up the chairs, welcome people, make coffee, teach children, teach youth, run the sound and lights, play the music, lead the worship, chat to people, pray for people, man the info desk, sweep the floor, do the washing up, turn the radiators off, radiators off, lock the doors. All very intensely practical things that need doing. But together, when we work together and we do that, we create an environment where the ministry of reconciliation can happen, where people can meet with God and experience his presence for themselves. I want to read you one more testimony. Somebody sent me this about two weeks ago. Um, Somebody who's reasonably new in the church over the last um, couple of months. I just want to say a huge thank you to you and your church for making us feel right at home. We have found that this is exactly what we've been looking for. We wanted to find connection with Jesus and fellowship, and I want to rebuild my relationship with God. We feel that Vineyard is a place for us as a family. Isn't that lovely? And if you're not on a team, by the way, there's plenty of opportunity to do that. Please join one. We have many spaces, especially on our kids and youth team. We don't do begging. We don't do arm twisting. Hopefully you can see why this is important. Second one, words of life. Another way that everyone can get involved in the ministry of reconciliation, starting here on Sunday mornings and out in the world, is to be praying for people who feel that they want to respond to what God is saying. 
When we come down the front here, we don't just pray nice thoughts or happy feelings. We're actually trying to pray bold prayers of prophetic encouragement. This is a place where we as a church community can practice what the Bible calls the gifts of the Spirit. This is what Mark was talking about last week. This is what the Equip and Ignite conference was aiming to do practically with us, to equip us to, to move in the gift of prophecy, which is the Bible's way of saying, speaking out words of life and truth and encouragement to those who really need to hear them. And there is an opportunity to both give and receive words of life here every Sunday in about three or four minutes towards the end of our service. And you are all welcome to either give or receive and to get involved. But I want to encourage you, as I've already said, that that's not just for here. The life of God can't stay here in the church. The life of God, if it's in any way real or healthy, must flow out of here, must impact on the places where we spend our time. And so what we do here is us learning to hear God's voice so that we can go out there and we can share encouraging words, the words of life in our workplaces or neighborhoods or gymnasiums or pubs or sports clubs or playgrounds or wherever we meet people, wherever we are. And the last thing is just multiply. I told you already that our word for the year is multiply. And what that looks like is God building his church here so that people can connect with him, can encounter his presence, can choose to follow Jesus as his disciples, and then that we multiply disciples and leaders and small groups and ministries and communities and churches. That the life that we experience here flows out to the places we live and work. Now, um, I made this map. I don't have a really clear strategy for this yet, and it's very crude, and it's a little bit hard to see. But basically, there's Winchester in the middle, and there's, if you can see it, there's a sort of funny square. Actually, look, I've got a pointer. Can you see that there? That funny square thing is the church. And uh, loosely, this is just based on what's on our database. Um, this is where people live who come to our church. Um, just move it on to the... Oh, there we go. The next slide. I mean, as I look at this place, I can find at least five, maybe six places around here where people come to church, come to this church from... But those are distinct communities. Now, I know Winchester is a sort of center of the sort of um, county or whatever, and people come in here for lots of reasons. I just wonder if there's a way in which the life of God that we are experiencing here can have an impact in some of these places. I just wonder what that looks like. I have some ideas. I'll probably share some with you soon. I don't have a very, very clear strategy as yet, but I do have this, and I've been praying about this and thinking about this for a long time, actually. I just, I, I'm, not, I'm not necessarily saying that we're, um, this isn't an announcement that we're going to do six church plants next week. That's not what I'm saying. I don't know quite what the structure looks like. I don't know what God's calling us to do, but particularly if you live in one of those places. By the way, Winchester counts as well as a place, even though it's in the center. Because the life of God that we experience here, if, if it's got any, anything to it, has to have an impact with people and communities around us. And there are others, by the way. I, counted, I did this exercise a few, uh, two, three years ago before COVID, and I counted 10 places. And these are just places where people come right now and they're on the database. It's a fairly, it's a fairly crude picture. But I hope you get my drift. As we think and pray about what God wants to do in this church, 
I feel sure that if multiplication and growth is coming, it's not just so that we do multiple services in this venue and what we do in this building gets bigger and bigger. It has to impact on communities. It has to go out from here. That is what I think Paul is talking about when he says, we're going to do this and we're going to make a difference. We urge you, brothers. So however we want to live our lives for other people practically, however God is calling us to, maybe that's, maybe that's something you think about and pray about. Maybe you wander around your neighborhood and think, what does God want to do here? Or, oh, there's, a, there's something wrong over there. There's a need. Maybe I could do something about that. Maybe we could do something about that. Maybe God could do something about that. We're going to move on next week to the next chapter. And the next two chapters are very specifically around generosity and financial giving. Just giving you a warning if you want to avoid them or something. Um, But for me, I'm just joking, don't avoid them, please. Very much part of the Bible. We haven't talked about money for a long time. Um, But I wanted to make sure that we understand that the context for that is about us acting out of the generosity that God has given us. Is that from the resilience of our faith, we're able to then give out and be generous. That an outflow from here, whether it be financially or any other way, whether we give our time or energy or money, whatever we invest in, it comes from this place of knowing God in us and then moving out from there. Why don't we stand together?